If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 21 through the beginning of chapter 5 and 5.1. We come today as we've been working through the book of Galatians to one of the most challenging passages of Scripture, not just verses, but entire passages of Scripture that you can find in almost all of Scripture. It has perplexed people for centuries, both across theological lines and across time. It's difficult for hermeneutical reasons. It's difficult because it it seems to imply something that we might not like about how we are to interpret the Old Testament. And it's also difficult because we don't really know what its function is here in Galatians. We are kind of caught off guard by what we find. As we talked about last week, Paul seemingly moved on from his arguments. He's given all of the logical and reasonable arguments that he could have from confession, saying that we have always confessed that you do not have justification in the law, but only through Christ, through the experience that the Galatians have of the Spirit. The Spirit has now been provided to you. What is the use of the law? Through Scripture itself, scriptural reasons provided as to what the law itself claims, and then even the nature of history. Paul has argued that salvation history is such that it points at the obliteration of the law by the coming of Christ. He's then, last week, talked about this emotive force. And so we come then to this passage which seems to be arguing for something, and it seems to be arguing for something in a weird way, in a bad way even, so much so that scholars are really confused by what goes on here. They accuse Paul of mishandling and misusing the Old Testament. They say, his treatment of Genesis here is disruptive to what you find in Genesis, and more than one scholar has gone so far as to call it disturbing. They think that Paul is actually doing dangerous things here and setting dangerous precedents for the people of God. People have accused Paul of making a farce of the Old Testament and the story of Abraham and his sons. Our job today is fairly simple, even if it's difficult. It's simply to explain what Paul is doing here and the reason why he is doing it. And in order to do this, whenever we come to a difficult text, it pays dividends to make sure that we are listening acutely to what he actually does say. So, in light of that, let us read the word of God. Beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written about that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of our God. 
If we would listen closely to what Paul says, we would first listen to Galatians. We need to listen to Galatians. What Paul says here in the beginning of verse 21 is, tell me. You have to remember kind of the context in which he says this. He has already talked to the Galatians as though he is a parent in 419. He says this, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. He has called himself a mother to them. He oftentimes calls his churches his children and he is their father. And so he is talking to them like a parent would talk to a child And as anyone knows, when you talk to children, oftentimes when you're disciplining them and you're talking to them, their eyes start to wander. And you can tell they're thinking of sparrows and squirrels and hockey. They're thinking of a number of other things except for the very thing that you're talking to them about. And so it helps every once in a while to go, hey, 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 eye contact. What did I just say? And then they say, "Eh, squirrel. And you're like, no, I wasn't talking about squirrels. So what Paul is doing is like an upset parent, he's looking at them and saying, listen, I've talked to you and I've told you and I've, I've argued with you. Now, can you repeat back to me what I'm saying? Several times in this book, he has looked to them and has told them, I'm telling you. It doesn't always come up in the ESV, but it's the same verb that's being used there. In 3.15, he says, brothers, I'm telling you this in a human way. In 3.17, now this is what I'm telling you. In 4.1, now I'm telling you. He's he's repeatedly contextualized his argument. He said some very difficult things, then he said, let's take a step back. Let me explain what I'm telling you. Let, let me explain what I'm talking to you about. Let me give you an example. And he's, he's several times said, I'm trying to use analogies and metaphors to explain these things to you. But now he looks at them and he says, now, now, you come back to me. You tell me what I've been talking about. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, when he says that, and immediately we go to the story of Abraham, what most people think of is that he is talking about the law in sort of a general sense. So you, you might not know this, but there's kind of a couple of ways to talk about the law. When we've been talking about the law in Galatians, what we are talking about are commands and ordinances. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. And that's typically what we mean when we talk about the law, but the law can be used in a number of ways. And sometimes the law is used to cover kind of the whole first five books of the Pentateuch. And that means that sometimes it's covering the narrative of the Pentateuch as well. And especially because Paul turns around and he starts talking about Abraham and his sons that people say, well, this is what he means by the law. Don't you listen to the law? Don't you listen to the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? That's not what Paul actually means here, though, I don't think. What I think he means is, have you listened to what I've been telling you about the law? So he's saying, tell me you who want to be under the law, have you actually heard what I've said about the law? So, so if, you've, if you've listened to me well, you should understand what I'm about to say. So if, if we are going to understand what he is going to say to us, it behooves us to go to the book of Galatians and try and figure out, as we've done over the past several months, what is Paul actually talking about when he says, if you've listened to the law in the book of Galatians, what is the law? As we've worked through Galatians, we've found, and we've tried to lay this out, but maybe not as clearly as we should, so we'll make it very clear now. Two ways of approaching God through human means. The first way that you can approach God, you can think, I am part of the people of God, I am associated with God, is through the law. The law uses flesh. So if you go back to chapter 3, verse 3, Paul talks about the fact that the law uses the flesh. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this, even going back to verse 2 a little bit, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with 
faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's clear that the law uses the flesh. The law uses your human ability to do what it wants you to do. That's why he repeatedly refers to the law as action and effort and effect. It is the works of the law. It isn't just the law in general, but what you do in the law. It is by using your flesh and by using the power of your own being to do the things that the law requires. The law uses the flesh, but the flesh, as we've seen, is entrapped in sin and the old age. So in 322, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, everything. That is, the law was imprisoned under sin. You were imprisoned under sin. Your abilities were imprisoned under sin. The law uses the flesh entrapped in sin and the old age to attempt to be justified by action, effort, and work, which it can never achieve. And therefore, what are you left with? Those who attempt to be declared right before God by their works will always be found guilty. They remain under the power of sin and death, and they are always found under the curse of the law. Now, we are here talking about the law specifically, but this goes for anybody who ever tries to be justified by anything that they do. Paul just doesn't think anyone's silly enough to be justified by anything in the works of their hands outside of the law, but it works for them as well. So if you say, hey, I'm a pretty good bloke. I haven't killed anybody. Paul says that that's not the requirement. The law says that you need to do everything written in the book of the law. That is the only way you gain life through it. And so the law is on one side, but the other side is just as important. And these two, these two ways of approaching God are sort of woven through the book of Galatians. Faith is the other side of that. Faith has always declared one right before God, whether pre-Jesus or post-Jesus. It has always done so, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And faith specifically in Jesus Christ justifies somebody in 2.16. It makes them receive the Spirit of God in 3.2. It spares the believer from the curse in 3.13 and from the power of sin and makes us sons and heirs in 4.7. These two ways are set diametrically opposed to one another. Either you approach God thinking that you can make it on your own, thinking that your work is good enough, that you can follow the law well enough to do it. And if you do so, You have to use your flesh, which is entrapped in sin and therefore only leads to cursing and damnation, or you approach God through faith. The law, therefore, in the book of Galatians is characterized by the flesh. It's characterized by sin, by the old age, by cursing and slavery, and it results in a status of being illegitimate sons and no longer heirs. But faith is characterized by the exact opposite things. Not the flesh, but the spirit. Not sin, but righteousness. Not the old age, but the new age. Not cursing, but blessing. Not slavery, but freedom. And sonship and heirdom. These are the two things that Paul has set continuously, diametrically opposed to one another. So let's be very clear about what Paul is doing in the rest of these verses before we even go on. He's not proving anything. This is not a new argument in that sense. He's not trying to say, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to prove that the law is like Hagar and I'm going to use it by using scripture. So if you read scripture rightly, you would see that. He's saying, no, 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 that's not not true. If you've read Galatians correctly, if you've read my letter correctly, if you're tracking with me, it should be obvious that in the story of Sarah and Hagar, Hagar is like the law. So he means for them to come to this this obvious conclusion. Because we know what the law is like, that it has these certain qualities, 
Who does it resemble in the story? So if we've correctly understood Galatians, let's see if number two, we've listened to Genesis. So let us listen to Genesis. And for this, we need to hear what Paul says in verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. It's interesting that Paul doesn't here mention either Hagar or Sarah by name. That's important, but we'll come back to why that is important. This is clearly for Paul a foundational story of Scripture. It is clear that for Paul, the story of how Abraham is made righteous and the story of his children coming out of that story, the story of Genesis itself, is incredibly foundational to everything. Not only has it already formed a good portion of the book of Galatians, but Romans 4, the entire chapter, is based off of not just Abraham believing in God and it being credited to him as righteousness, but also even in the fact that Isaac is brought forward from a womb that is much more like a tomb than a womb. It's dead. Sarah is too old to have children. And Paul likens this to almost a resurrection. So it's clear that this is an incredibly foundational story, but we have to admit, when we go back to Genesis and we read Genesis, it doesn't seem like it's going to work very well for Paul. And scholars are quick to note this. The story just doesn't seem to fit what Paul wants it to fit. You say he's... he's really, really working hard here to fit a square peg into a round hole, and he is not really doing a good job. But that's not true. What is the actual story about? Again, in Galatians, or in, excuse me, in Genesis 12, God comes to Abram, and he says to Abram, listen, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing, and I'm going to bring forward a nation from you. And it's important to realize that in Genesis 12, he doesn't say a family for you. He specifically says a nation. By the time we get to Genesis 15, certain things have happened in the middle. By the time we get to Genesis 15, nothing like that has actually happened. God has indeed taken him to the land of Canaan. He's shown him the land. But Abram's got a problem. Abram comes to God and he says, listen, God re-ups his affirmation of Abraham and Abraham says to him, listen, that's all well and good, but, but the heir of my house is going to be Eleazar of Damascus. It, it's, it's somebody else. It's not my my kin. It's no one from me. I don't have a physical son to pass that on to. I've, I've got to pass it on to this guy, and, and Eleazar is a good little boy, but he's not my good little boy. And God says, listen, I promise you, come outside. And in the desert, as you would imagine, he looks up at the stars, and it's littered. The Milky Way is on fire. And he says, if you can count those, that will be what your children are like. And Abraham believes him. And it's counted to him as righteousness. But we don't know how God is going to fulfill that promise. And so, no less than one chapter later, Sarah does something unbelievable. Whether out of love or out of guilt, it was clearly Sarah who was unable. And the Bible kind of portrays barrenness as a problem with women. It's clearly not always a problem with women. But in this case, it was a problem with Sarah. Sarah couldn't bear children for Abram. And so, she does what is kind of unthinkable. She says, listen, I am keeping you from having this promise fulfilled. I have a servant. Take her as a wife. Go in and make yourself a family with her. Abram does this. Ishmael is born. Abram loved Ishmael. Absolutely loved him. It's important at this time to realize the promises that have come to Abram have been for him. They have not been for Sarah. 
At no place in those early promises does it say, I will bring a child forward for you from Sarah. Sarah has nothing to do with the promise. She's sort of connected to Abraham by marriage, and she comes along with Abraham in everything that he does, but the promise does not run through her. So Abram thinks, listen, I can, I can bring the promise true. I can look up and see the stars in the sky, and I can make it true by fathering a child with Hagar. And he does so. But as any of us could see coming from a million miles away, as much as Sarah may be meant to do it out of the goodness of her heart, this is, it's not going to work. Almost immediately we find out that Sarah is embittered toward Hagar. And she begins to treat her harshly and brutally, so much so that Hagar flees and goes into the desert to try and get away, threatening the life not only of herself but of her child. And God steps in and says, I will protect you. You are to go back and you are to, to submit yourself to Sarah. And so she takes Ishmael back to Abram. And then in chapter 17, something very odd happens. God shows up again and reaffirms again the promise to Abram, using almost the precise same language. And then he turns around and at the very end of, or in the middle of that 17th chapter, says the following to Abram. He has already changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, signifying again and re-upping and reaffirming that I am going to bring a whole bunch of kids through you. In verse 15 of that 17th chapter, God says this, As for Sarai, your wife, you will not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings and peoples shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed, it's reasonable, and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Now, it's not like he's that far away from having fathered a kid, right? So he's like, I'm a hundred. Am I going to have another child now? And what's more than that? Sarah's 90. God says, yeah, yeah, Sarah's going to have a child. Now, Abram, interestingly, although God doesn't say it, picks up on what this means for Ishmael, whom he loves very dearly immediately. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, upon reading through that, there are a number of questions that come to mind. First, it's clear that there had to have been physical descendants from Abraham. It's clear that that was part and parcel of the Genesis text. Otherwise, the miracle makes no sense. It is physical descendants from Abraham that matter. And the Jews cling on to that very, very tightly. As a matter of fact, it's physical descendants from God that receive all of the promises. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of Jacob's sons who receive the promises. God didn't go into the land of Canaan and pick out five random people and by election say, now from you guys, I'm going to build up a nation. But he chose to do it through lineage, through genealogical resemblance from one father to the next to the next, to the next. But secondly, the Bible never tells us what's wrong with Ishmael. It, it never it implies anything that's really wrong with Ishmael. You'd be surprised, as famous as Ishmael is, how little Scripture says about him. Scripture tells us that he was born. It tells us that he fathered some kids. It tells us that he buried Abraham. And other than that, tells us almost nothing about what he did in life. 
he laughed one time at Isaac. As we read through this, Paul says that this is important. What's important here, he provides for us in verse 23. 23 is the lens by which he is going to view this story. And the story doesn't set up well for him because the story seems to imply that that physical line of descendancy is really important. And and maybe God had to clip a couple of branches off of that physical line of descendancy, but nevertheless, that physical line of descendancy is important. Paul says, but there's a way that you have to read this. And verse 23 provides what we might call the lens, right? So when you go to the optometrist and they they put up a picture to see what kind of lens you need, how much you need in order to be able to see appropriately, right? Maybe they don't do that. I don't know. I've never been to the optometrist. I've got perfectly good eyes. But for the rest of you who can't see anything, what they do is they, they have something up there that should be clear, right? And they keep flipping up new lenses until you can see what is clear. And when you hit the lens that makes the picture clear, then you've hit what is right and purposeful, okay? So what Paul is doing is saying, this is the lens that makes this passage clear. This is the lens that clarifies this story in light of Christ. What is that lens in verse 23? But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. He says, you don't want to look at this through wickedness and righteousness, but through faith and promise and flesh and slavery. So the Jews answered this question all the time. They knew that there was an issue with Ishmael. They knew that there was an issue with Esau. And then they had to explain, why is Isaac provided when there's a perfectly good heir sitting there who fulfills in detail all of the promises that God had made? Ishmael was perfectly legitimate. Why does God get rid of him? Why does God not accept him? The Jews came back knowing that God was a holy God, knowing that he had requirements in the law, knowing that he wanted things to be done a certain way. They came back almost ubiquitously every single time they talked about Ishmael, talking about how he was wicked. There's almost nothing in scripture that supports that. But it's helpful. It it explains in light of the rest of scripture why Ishmael might have been rejected. They do the same thing for Esau. Which again makes sense. We can see more of Esau. We see more of his selfishness and his impulsiveness. And we can understand why they would say that. But Paul says that's the wrong lens to view it through. The right lens to view it through is promise. The right lens to view it through is flesh. So let us do that. Number three. Illegitimate children are made by the flesh. And so Paul begins his allegory. Illegitimate children are made by the flesh. The allegory begins here. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Let's define what we mean by allegorically really quickly. Allegory is very simple. It's the idea that these stories have clear and immediate implications for your life. That's it. There's nothing else to it. It doesn't mean that it's got to have a deeper meaning or it doesn't mean that we ignore what is prima facie said in the text itself, all it means is that when you read this story, this story means something for you. It's not just a history lesson. It's not just about how God worked through Abraham. He's saying this has implications for your life. That is what it means to interpret something allegorically. You're asking, what does this mean for me? And Paul says, we can pull meaning out of this. He goes on to say, these two women are covenants. These women are two covenants. 
The two covenants are quite clearly the Abrahamic covenant, not the new covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is all over this letter. It is the only covenant that Paul has mentioned. It's typically the only covenant that Paul does mention. So there is the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. One is a covenant of promise. The other is a covenant of works. He goes on to say that she is Hagar. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. The law is Hagar. But again, Paul is not out to prove the law is Hagar, but to prove that the shoe fits, right? So it's, it's March Madness time. We talk about Cinderella's all the time. The story in Cinderella, how does the prince know that Cinderella is the girl? How does he know? Everyone knows this. My kids know this. He puts the shoe on her foot, right? She must have incredibly tiny or incredibly huge feet, right? So he slips that size 14 slipper on there. And though she was very light on her feet the night before, the shoe fits. And he knows, hey, that's Cinderella, right? And Paul is saying, listen, let's, let's take the picture that I have provided in the book of Galatians. If you've been listening to what I've been saying, now let's apply it to the story. And let's see which of these moms the shoe fits on. So let's play our little game. Answer this story. In, in the book of Genesis, is the story that we've read through, who, who, through the use of the flesh as a slave, makes a child that eventually becomes illegitimate and thus not an heir. Hagar. In the book of Galatians, what, through the use of the flesh, in slavery, makes children that will always be illegitimate and thus not heirs? The law. Paul says, if you've listened to me, if you've listened to what the law is, you know that when you read this story, the law is embodied by Hagar. She has to use the flesh. This is what Abram does. He, he says, I have a promise from God that I will make true by applying my flesh to the situation and I will do it myself. And he does it through Hagar and makes a child. And God says, that child will never err. He will never inherit. But the other child is given by promise. The other child is given by God. He fulfills it himself. So when Paul says that Sarah, or excuse me, that Hagar is Mount Sinai, that Hagar is this sort of law covenant, what he's saying is she is the embodiment of it. This is precisely what it looks like. You only bear children for slavery. The law can only make children of slaves. That's it. Who will never, ever inherit because God will reject them not just because they're wicked and evil, but because they can't help but be anything but that. He goes on to say, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Again, he's not trying to prove anything. He's saying, listen, Hagar is a physical reality. There wasn't anything mysterious or mystical about Ishmael. There wasn't anything mysterious or mystical about how that child was made. Just as Mount Sinai stands in Arabia to this day, it's physical, it's earthly. There is nothing out of the ordinary done. It's all old age stuff. You work with your flesh. You work with the stuff of the earth. You need God for that. Not at all. He had no hand in anything that happened there other than simply the normal sustaining of the universe that he does all the time. Just like that mountain still stands, Hagar was there. It is a very physical, real world application of what goes on. But fourth, true children are made by the Spirit. Paul goes on to say, for it is written, rejoice, or excuse me, in verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free. So the present Jerusalem, which is in 
in this world always has children who are slaves. Paul's not out to prove that. He's already talked about why they're slaves. He's already made that point. He's just saying as a raw fact, they are slaves, but we are not. Our, our Jerusalem is above. Notice it's not future, but it's above. He says, and we are free. And he proves this by quoting from Isaiah 54, 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. It would be fitting to go back then and to look at what Paul is quoting in Isaiah because oftentimes when Paul quotes in Isaiah, when New Testament authors do this as a way of interpreting the Old Testament, they don't just quote it for that verse, they quote it for everything that's around there. And we get a lot of illumination by looking at the book of Isaiah. So if you have your scriptures, please open them back to Isaiah 51 as we kind of set this in context. First, the book of Isaiah is pretty much split into two different sections. As Pastor read this morning from Isaiah 3, we are reminded that the beginning of the book of Isaiah, although it has these beautiful, bright, illuminating pictures of the promise of God coming true for his people. It is filled with judgment and wrath. Even the most beautiful of the early portions of Genesis, or the early portions of Isaiah sound like this. So we remember the one most famous missionary passage of all time from Isaiah 6. He sees the seraphim and holy, 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 they're yelling back and forth and a coal comes down and cleanses his lips. Who will go for me? I will. And then every missionary in the world who has ever preached that text stops in verse 8 because this is what it says in verse 9. Isaiah says, I will go. I will. I will preach to your people. And God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but don't understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He says, you're going to go and you're going to preach so that they will stay in their judgment, so that they will stay in their sins, so that I will punish them. That's not happy. The first part of Isaiah is not happy. But then in chapter 40, the world changes. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. In Isaiah 51, we get this outstanding opening verse. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now, when we hear that rock language, we immediately think of God, right? They were formed because of God, of, of God's work. And we're not, we're not wrong there, Every time we hear the word rock, we especially taking on sort of human characteristics like it kind of does here, we're, we're to think of God, but he has something different in mind. He says, look to Abraham, your father. Not to God, but to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. It's an important passage. This is the only time outside of the book of Genesis that the Old Testament ever names Sarah. Only once. And this rock imagery is beautiful for two things. One, Abraham was their rock. He was their place of refuge. When the people sinned on the bottom of Mount Sinai, when Moses comes back up, what does he put before the Lord? He puts before the Lord Abraham. So that the Lord will not crush his people, he says, we will run to Abraham. You have made promises to Abraham. And because you've made promises to Abraham, Lord, you can't do this. Abraham was a rock for them. He was the one being who allowed them, the one name that allowed them to continually put before the Lord his own promises. But it's not just Abraham, it's Sarah. And she's a rock in a totally different way. Just like bringing forth the water in the desert from a rock was a miracle, bringing forth Isaac from a rock in Sarah is a miracle. 
She had no more capabilities of bringing forth a child than a rock does. And God is reminding them, you were hewn from a rock. You were hewn from one who has a dead womb. She was 90 years old. She was not making a womb. Or she was not making a child in that womb. The chapter goes on, chapter 51 goes on, to focus on the universal salvation, the unilateral salvation by God. Notice verses 10 and 11. Was it not God who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It is God who will make the way for them to go through. Why? Because her sons, the people of Israel from this this city, her sons are entrapped They are enslaved. Notice verse 17 of that same chapter, chapter 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you have drunk to the dregs the bowl and the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her. Where are her kids? Where are the people of Israel? Among all the sons she has borne, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she has brought up, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of God. How will she be delivered? If the sons of Jerusalem are unable to deliver the nation, how will it be delivered? It will be delivered by God himself. And chapter 52 starts to make this clear. Look at verse 12. Before we get to the most famous passage in probably all of the Old Testament as it relates to the deliverance that God is going to bring, he says this in verse 12. You shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. The Lord will go before you and the Lord of God of Israel will be your rear guard. God says, I will totally encompass you in your front and in your back. The salvation that comes to you will not come from your sons. It will come from me. I will deliver you. And how will he deliver them? He will deliver them by the suffering servant of the latter portions of Isaiah 52 and 53. One will be crushed for their transgressions. He will be bruised for their salvation. God will bring all of the glory and all of his power down upon his, suf- his servant and he will be pleased to bruise him so that they might be freed. And after that, he says, the response is rejoice. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now in Galatians, it seems like the two women who are being contrasted there must be Hagar and Sarah. That doesn't make a lot of sense here. Hagar is not mentioned. And to think that Hagar is the one who has symbolized one being married and not Sarah although she is technically married, is really pushing, pushing the envelope of, of what that could possibly mean. It, it doesn't seem like it fits. But when you read it in light of what Isaiah has been saying, it makes really good sense. He has, this mentioning of a barren one brings you immediately back to what he has already said about Sarah. Sarah was a barren one. It was a miracle what God did there. He looked at Sarah, who was as good as dead. He waited all that time to make sure that Sarah's womb was understood as being completely and totally closed. There is no medical intervention. There is nothing naturally that ever could have happened to make Sarah carry a child. And he waited and he waited and he waited until all hope was gone. And then God says, now I will do it. And I will provide a son for you. 
In the meantime, then, he paints this picture of a nation that is on the brink of ruin that only God will help. And then what does he say? The one who had a husband, the one who gave Abraham children, who was married to him, the number of her kids is going to pale in comparison to the one whom I'm about to bring forward. To all of the children I'm about, after the suffering servant does his work, I am going to bring forward children for Abraham in a way that you don't understand. You think that Sarah was a miracle? Hold on. Sarah brought forth children in a very natural way, although the spirit intermediated in that. But now there will be no labor. Now there will not even be intimacy. There's no husband there. But clearly, God isn't out of the picture in verse 5 of chapter 54. He says, the maker is your husband. The husband is still pictured. The husband is still there, but he's not, a, he's not an earthly husband. He's not an earthly father. There won't be children of physical lineage. He will make children by the Spirit. He will bring forward children of Abraham by a miracle that is nothing less than the work of the Spirit of God in them. This is what John 1.13 says. He says that these children were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. God will give Abraham children that Sarah could never give him. And she will do it, he will do it, through this miracle after the suffering servant passes. And Paul says, that is you. That is you. That is what the passage is getting at. The Jerusalem above is free. The the city that gives birth to sons, unlike the, the city of Jerusalem, whose sons were so entrapped in sin, could never deliver her. But God will act from heaven, and he will bring forward his spirit, and he will make children from Abraham from nothing from other moms and other people who didn't know him, he will give you new birth and you will become his children. Paul ends by saying, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, so it is now. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son because she won't inherit. God says, those who are born of the flesh are not my children. Now it's true that God then gives Isaac a son of the flesh But what Paul is saying is, even if he did that, it doesn't negate the fact that it was God's promise, it was God's action. All of those children, every single one of them that come, Isaac, Jacob, Dan, Asher, Joseph, all of them that come after the whole 12 tribes, Levi, the whole bit, all of them are traceable back to one promise and one fulfillment by miraculous means by God. It was always by his promise. It was always by the work of the Spirit. Paul says, who do you think you are? When you read that story, are you a product of Sarah or are you a product of Hagar? It is clear that there is something here about how we are to read the Old Testament. We are to read the Old Testament like it says things to us, like it matters for us. This isn't just a history lesson. It's not just so that we can answer Bible trivia or it's not just so that we can feel better in the morning for having gone through this story, which doesn't apparently mean anything for us. But Paul thinks that it clearly has meaning for you. In 1 Corinthians 10.6, he says, these things are written as an example for you. Read scripture expecting that it's being written about you. The Spirit has kept these things for millennium so that you, lowly person, might read them and know and understand and be changed by them. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for you. 
But secondly, we are to hear the point of what Paul is saying. Your flesh is of absolutely no help to make you a child of God. You want to work with your hands to prove that you belong in God's people. You want to make sure that everyone knows how good of a person you are. You're going to help grandma across the street. You'll unload her groceries. You'll give money to United Way. You'll do everything you can. You'll be a member of a church. You'll sing happy songs. You'll smile at people. You'll cry when they cry. You'll weep when they weep. You'll rejoice when they rejoice. You'll do everything that you physically can. And Paul says, you are nothing but a slave to your sin. And unless you repent and believe in Christ, it's not going to get you anywhere anywhere with God. True sons are only made by trusting in him and believing in the promises that God has given. That is the only way you will ever be not only a son of God, but a son of Abraham. Because Abraham's real sons were always given to him by the promise. It is freedom from sin that Christ has set you free by. Stand firm. Don't entrust yourself to the work of your hands. Don't trust that you're a good enough person to make it. Don't trust that anything that you do will ever be accepted before God as righteousness. It's rubbish to him. Because everything you do is tainted by sin because you are held under sin. You are so held under sin, by the way, that right now many of you are saying, I'm not held under sin. Because I don't feel like I am. I feel like I'm a good person. Scripture is replete with references that you might feel that way, but it doesn't make you a good person. God will only accept those who by faith entrust themselves to Christ. So in the end, that is what we must do. We entrust ourselves to the work of Jesus Christ so that we might not have a righteousness of our own, but we might only trust in that which comes from Christ. As Paul himself said, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, but because by works of the law, no flesh will ever be justified. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful that we have come before you and read of your word and know of your word that we might be warned of our own self-satisfaction before you, that we think that we can show up before your grand court and clear ourselves because of the work of our hands, that we can be good enough to earn your favor that we can do things that are right enough for you to say, enter in, good and faithful servant. There is only one who was ever good enough for that, your own suffering servant who you pinned to a cross and poured your wrath out upon, that we might not suffer from it. Father, let us then turn to you in faith. We pray, we pray that you will pour out your spirit upon us, convince us of these truths that we can trust only in Christ, that our own works deceive us. And we are led astray by them, but Christ is faithful and true and will never lead us astray. Father, grant faith to us that we might be children of the promise, always walking according to that which you have called us to walk in faith, not by the works of our hands, trusting only that Jesus Christ has paid for our sin and has given us redemption in his resurrection. We ask that you do this for the name of Jesus Christ and for the good of your people. In his name we pray, amen.